Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to have a very special podcast on Germany and its role in the world with a very special guest, Michel Thumann from the Zeit, which is the leading German weekly newspaper. He's their uh, chief foreign affairs correspondent and has a long track record as a reporter and analyst of global affairs at the Zeit, having been based in Russia, in Turkey, in Egypt. And uh, it's his job to help Germans understand what's going on in the world. And also to he spends a lot of his time traveling with German policymakers around these different capitals. And I think has got a, a unique ringside seat into the changing of Germany's role. So maybe we can just start with a very general question, Michel. If you think about uh, Germany in um, 2018, um, how much of a foreign policy power is it now? I mean, has it made the shift from simply being uh, a trading power and an economic power into one which really has a, a, a sense of strategic purpose? Well, I think actually we have seen a, a significant shift uh, from 2014 onwards because uh, that was basically the year when Germany understood that it had to play another role and that it just c couldn't withdraw to the dream of the average German of being, being a, a bigger Switzerland. And, uh, and the economic. trigger was the annexation of Crimea. And the, precisely that. And, and this is when, when uh, Germany's foreign policy makers uh, and uh, the Berlin elites understood that they have to deliver finally. And, and also, it was notably, it was after five years of economic boom, so the money was there. Uh, the the challenge was there, and then uh, that was the moment when they got started. And do you think it was also because Germany had been forced into a position of leadership as a result of the euro crisis? So Angela Merkel got used to leading on the euro, and then Crimea happened, and she was in a position yes, to bring Europe together on that. Absolutely. I mean, that was she. She had that experience, uh, and it was relatively relatively successful from her point of view um, and uh, plus that uh, simply Germany as a result of the euro crisis also as a result of the introduction of the euro in the early 2000s Germany has much more economic weight and thus more political weight in Europe today and uh, so but um, there's a recent trend uh, which is inverse because as a result of the internal um, changes in Germany there is a certain paralysis of, of German policy. We are basically sliding back into something which is not quite clear but we talk about responsibility, we talk about assuming responsibility but uh, I think we have to back up this claim. Wasn't there a, a kind of act two between the uh, the rise and the fall of German foreign policy, which was the, the refugee and migration crisis, which obviously had a profound impact on German domestic politics, which is still <laughs> out playing out at the moment, but also did mean that 
questions in the Middle East also felt less far away, given that large numbers of people from Syria were coming over here. And it, it did mean that German troops started playing a part in different parts of the world, sent to Mali. Um, it was very different from your pre-2014 picture with yes. Libya, for example, where Germany felt that you could just go for the greater Switzerland option. Right. I mean, that was very important that in, in 2015 with the refugee crisis, um, uh, there was all of a sudden uh, German policymakers felt an urge to really look into the neighborhood and, uh, and, and see where, where do problems come from and, and problems actually which had very tangible results in domestic policies and that all of a sudden what happened in, in, in foreign countries um, had, had an impact here. And, and I mean, the Chancellor felt it since 2015. It has changed uh, basically foreign um, and, and, and impact and impact of foreign policy um, had results in, uh, in, the, in the makeup of the German party system. It had, has reduced uh, the Social Democrats uh, to 15% in the polls. And, uh, in a good poll. And yes, in less. a good poll, exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, sometimes they are trailing behind uh, AFD and the Greens. And, uh, and of course, also it has cost the CDU a lot. So this is, and, and, and this is now on their mind. So, uh, so you, so that's what you think is leading to the paralysis. The fact that a lot of the mainstream political parties are fighting to survive. And therefore, they're more inward-looking. Yes, uh, because uh, well, th that is one reason. The second, the second reason is simply that um, well, we had a kind of um, um, no government uh, situation after the elections of 2017 and the formation of a new government March this year, and uh, since uh, since then we have a very wobbly grand coalition. Um, which is not able to live up to the expectations of many neighbors, and particularly France, of yeah, course. There was the long waiting for Germany. Um. Exactly. You know, they waited for Germany, and when Germany finally uh, re-emerged on the scene, it, uh, it turned out to be much weaker than before the elections in September 2017, and more, well, undecisive on, on certain issues, because they know that... That particular issues, uh, such as the banking union and the future integration uh, within the European Union, it's difficult to push through uh, domestically in Germany. So a lot of people in Germany came to the conclusion quite early on that if there was going to be a German answer to Macron, it couldn't come uh, in the economic sphere because a lot of the things which France was hoping for were politically impossible here. So foreign policy was offered as a placebo. Yes. And therefore, um, there was a kind of degree of activism initially around PESCO, which uh, we've discussed often on this podcast, the permanent structured cooperation, which anyway ended up not being quite to France's liking. But, but it was a sort of sign of German willingness and then also Germany moving into Mali and into other areas. But maybe one way of having, now that we've covered some of the general background, maybe one of the ways to, to make this more concrete is to look at some of the specific issues. And you, maybe we could start with Russia as a kind of issue because you said that Russia in a way was part of Germany's rebirth as a foreign policy power. It's no doubt that Germany played an absolutely 
pivotal role in creating a, a coalition within the European Union in favour of sanctions after the annexation of Crimea. Um, and has been a, a strong supporter of, of, of those sanctions since then, which have lasted much longer than many people maybe thought they would in, back in 2014. But um, Russia's come back to the, the forefront of the agenda in lots of different ways, most recently through its skirmishes with Ukraine mm. in the, the Sea of yeah. Azov, um, but also Russia in the Middle East is an increasing factor. Um, how do you see Germany's policy towards Russia developing? Because the, it's obviously been a, a kind of evergreen subject for tension between the parties uh, yeah. and uh, it certainly looms very large when it comes to the SPD that has this kind of long track record. It's such of- a divisive issue in the SPD and among all these, uh, well, they are the... The, the, the old foreign policy hands appearing in talk shows and, and uh, talking about the urge for closer relations to Russia. But that's nostalgia. nostalgia. I think what's important is um, to see that there's a major shift in German to, uh, German-Russian relations since 2014 because Germany and Russia appear to be on two sides of, of, of the fence. Russia is looking for... Uh, uh, trying to alter the status quo in in uh, Europe, trying to alter treaties from 1990 and all the treaties they have signed since, um, and uh, and Germany is, is 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 trying to stick to these treaties and to hold on to to the order which was established after 1990, and and this is a, a fundamental contradiction of these two countries. Nevertheless, this year we have seen a kind of warming up of relations because there were visits of Merkel. She was in Sochi, greeted by Putin with fl- flowers, and Merkel invited Putin to Meseberg, uh, the guest house of uh, uh, the uh, foreign government, uh, the, 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 the federal government. So this is... These are just signs, but I think and what Nord Germany Stream tries to do as well is another. And there is Nord Stream too, which is of course the <laughs> which is has always been there and not much talked about, but will be talked about now as it's as it's close to politicized as well. Very US. politicized, and the Americans, of course, are going against it, and and particularly now after the events in the Sea of Azov, again they push for an end of uh, Nord Stream two construction, but. There has this, what, what I think the Germans try to do now is to somehow balance the contradictory interests of East and, and Central East Europeans and Poland and the Baltic states um, on the one hand. And, and, and then, of course, you have Ukraine uh, closely allied with, uh, with Poland on, on many issues vis-a-vis Russia. And on the other hand, Russia. Because Germany is the the major mediator between all these countries, and uh, this this role, of course, is um, you can see it in the Minsk process, um, the negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, and France and Germany. Um, the Germany is in the driver's seat there, and from Minsk, you can you can also see as um, they they have been using this platform also to talk about the very recent crisis yeah. in the Sea of Azov. One of the so, interesting 
things about this, I think, is the role that the German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas has played, because the SPD has traditionally been a party that saw its role as as creating détente between well the Soviet Union and 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 the West in the old days, and now uh, between Russia and, and and the European Union. Um, and there was uh, every single SPD Foreign Minister launches a new Ostpolitik. And says that we need a new Ostpolitik because the, the shadow of, of Willy Brandt and Egon Barr is such a long one, um, that they all see themselves really having long, to, yeah. to fulfill those particular shoes. But, but, um, Heiko Maas's version of Ostpolitik is pretty different from, from his predecessors because the other ones were all about being nice to Russia. But he talks yeah. about a European Ostpolitik, which seems to me, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but he, he's basically, saying that we have terrible relationship with Eastern Europe. The way that we can rebuild it is through a common hatred of Russia. And um, he talks about Russia in a language which SPD politicians haven't ever really used before as, a, as an enemy yes. and as a, as, a, as a rival and as a problem. Um, and and he, he, ta he talked about Russia having an enemy attitude towards, towards Europe. Europe. That's what he said. Right? Yeah. And, But that's quite different even from, I mean, I think Steinmeier, for example, was pretty tough on, on Russia, actually. Having tried to engage Russia, he was very burnt by the war in Georgia right. and then actually did play a very important part in this new consensus, which led to the, the sanctions. The difference was that Steinmeier was uh, harsh and, and very decisive in deeds. Yeah. Particularly in 2014, yeah. but not in words. Exactly, that's the point. And Mars, interestingly enough, is the <laughs> other way around. You okay. know? We have heard quite harsh words, yeah. but how does he live up to these words? Uh, and his, his, he, he's, he has, uh, he calls it a new Ostpolitik. Uh, a European Ostpolitik. As opposed to, as I would say, or as a continuation, as he would say, of the old Ostpolitik of Brandenburg. I think it's quite different because what they do, try to do now is basically, while having relations with Russia and trying to deal with Russia, They always try to take into account the point of view of the countries in between. Yeah. And I think that's a very important policy shift. And it's, it's, it is very important because, uh, uh, these countries are part of the European Union. Um, we all in the European Union from Italy to Estonia, uh, have sanctions, uh, against Russia. And uh, we, we, we need to keep the union together on, on all these issues. Um, so, and this is basically what, what Mars is emphasizing. And that, of course, changes also the, the view on Russia. But I, I do not see yet how that materializes in, in, in concrete crises like now in the Kerch Azov crisis. Yeah. So what is Germany doing the Kerch Azov crisis? Because what was interesting is until before this crisis started, everyone was talking about a European army and European defense. And then when this happens, everyone says, oh, what's, what's Washington doing? How uh, and we've been very keen to put, to put um, the White House and the State Department. In the yeah, way. I mean, when it, when, it, when it comes to, of course, arms and, and defending <laughs> Ukraine or something, and, and that Washington is, uh, is of course, the, the only telephone number to call because the Europe, uh, European certainly, I mean, this is certainly not something also the European, the project of a European army would be directed at. But um, w what the Germans are doing here is um, it, it 
I, I found it quite uh, quite interesting that they wouldn't use very strong language. They were among the Europeans, the ones with uh, very cautious language, um, and that they somehow tried to balance and to keep their mediation role. Right. So uh, they called it a violation of international law and this and that, but, but then also they called upon both sides. Yeah. So I, I think actually they have been more cautious uh, than um, in, in, uh, in other, like for example, the Skripal incident. Um, and, uh, and I wonder whether they would agree on additional sanctions now, as I have heard um, US diplomats already calling for. Yeah. So. And do you think that they might push for a, a kind of an OSC monitoring mission in the, in the Sea of Azov? Yes, yes. I, I think that would be in, in line with uh, the principle, with their principles. They would uh, also probably agree to even more if it's a peacekeeping miss- mission. But this hasn't been even agreed on in, in Ukraine, uh, in, in, in Donbass. So, uh, that's, uh, f- that's far from now. But it's, but, but this OSCE mission, the Germans are backing that and certainly also an expansion. Um, but the, the, the problem there in the Sea of Azov is basically that Russia claims that it's uh, because it has Crimea now and has the, the, the other, other side of the peninsula and they claim it's their territorial waters. But it, it used to be, uh, and it still is, uh, by law, international law, the, the two countries, Crimea is Ukraine, and the other part is, uh, is Russia. So, and they have a treaty on that of 2003. And, uh, yeah. But uh, Russia thinks that treaty is obsolete because they annexed Crimea yeah. and it's all ours. Yeah, indeed. So why don't we move on to the, the sort of second major uh, non-European European power, which you know very well as well, uh, and which is also quite complicated in terms of German identity and German history, which mm. is, is Turkey. Um, Turkey obviously is not just a foreign policy issue because of the large number of people of Turkish origin who, who live uh, in this country. So it's uh, intertwined with domestic politics in a way that almost no other foreign policy issue is. Uh, it was massive during the refugee crisis um, and the relationship between the Chancellor and Erdogan has also been quite a complicated one. But that mm-hmm. seems to be moving in a more positive direction as well. He, he also came here around the time that she was entertaining um, Putin in Mezeberg. Another visitor to Mezeberg was, um, was, was President Erdogan. Yeah, he was, well, and particularly Erdogan got this state banquet uh, and, and state visit um, in the Bellevue uh, Palace of uh, President Steinmeier. This is what the Turks had been asking for since a long time, and then Steinmeier and Merkel finally agreed to that. Um, I think this is, it. there is a, a, there are better relations on the surface. But it's just on the surface because uh, the underlying tensions are all there, which uh, are basically driven by Erdogan's reach out to, to German Turks, Turks of German origin. Um, and I think what we all thought would be a uniting element of Turkish-German relations, and on every conference somebody referred to this uniting 
uh, element, the, the Turks living in Germany, it, 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 it has turned out to be a very divisive issue, but not because of the Turks and German Turks here, but because of Erdogan and his abuse of the fact that close to three million people of Turkish origin live in Germany. Um, and the abuse is materializing in, in the DTIP, so basically the mosque uh, institution, depending on the Turkish government, which is uh, active in Germany and runs most of the mosques in Germany. It is uh, a ministry in, in Turkey which is uh, caring for Turks in Germany. And, and of course, and this is why on a constant, uh, uh, constantly uh, German Turks traveling to Turkey are being arrested there because Turkey sees them as Turks, Turkish citizens, and yeah. doesn't recognize their second passport. Yeah. Um, and so this is why I think we'll be running into trouble. But it also, uh, I mean, it's also a way of, but it's also a way of, I think that it does recognize their German citizenship as well. It's a way of weaponizing their German citizenship, no? Well, yes, of course. It's a bargaining in, in, chip. If it's it's a bargaining chip, so um, he likes it. Uh, if if Germans of Turkish origin have a, Ger a Turkish passport to vote for Erdogan and AKP, yeah. he likes it if they have a, a German passport and vote for parties who would uh, play along the playbook of Erdogan. Um, there have been some small local parties established with close links to AKP. Unsuccessful, though. Yeah. But it's also, um, you know, like all these things, a double-edged question, isn't it? Because from, a, from, from Angela Merkel's perspective, having a bad relationship with Erdogan um, was also quite useful after everyone accused her of being overly pro-Muslim after the, the refugee crisis of 2015, being able to pick a fight with a prominent Islamist, even uh, on the grounds that he was a, 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 an autocrat rather than the grounds that he was, a, that he was Muslim, uh, was not unhelpful with her Christian democratic base, as, as Mark Rutte discovered in the Netherlands. It turned yeah. out to be very good politics. And Merkel has always exploited this to a certain extent, sometimes more, sometimes less. But particularly if we look back 2005 when she became chancellor and she suggested privileged partnership, which I think would be a good idea uh, uh, today, but certainly not at a moment when the European Union and Turkey at, in, in the honeymoon time had just opened uh, membership negotiations. Yeah. So, and that was also directed at her electorate, and, and she always played with that. And so she did, in fact, in the last two years. Yeah. And how much thought is there here about, given how important Turkey is? I mean, in some ways, Germany uh, completely changed the nature of the, the relationship between the EU and Turkey by opening up another track through the refugee um, crisis um, and the deal um, which Germany brokered was basically a kind of parallel structure to the accession process, but, but opened up the way for, for essentially a privileged partnership, given that the accession process wasn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a kind of subtle way of killing the accession process by opening up a, a, a more promising route alongside <laughs> it. I mean, it was already yes. dead anyway, but, but this was a way yeah. of... I mean, the, 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 there is, I, I would call it, an additional track. It hasn't replaced membership relations, but what, what we have, the membership relations are not um, 
cut uh, uh, the membership track is is not cut it's not uh, completed it's uh, it's not dead but it's I would, it's in hibernation. I would call it that way. You know, nobody works on that. Nobody, everybody knows that none of the chapters can can be opened now. Yeah. Uh, and others which have been opened can't be closed. Yeah. Uh, and completed. That's a very but, polite way of but, saying but it, it though, because I mean, when but, the, the glory period you're talking about, when Angela Merkel first proposed the strategic partnership the direction of travel was towards greater integration and was about the Europeanization of Turkey and Turkey put five constitutional reform packages through its parliament. It was becoming more European by the week, literally. Yeah. And now it's not just becoming less European, but less Western. The country is uh, changing politically in a dramatic way, but also in terms of how it defines its interests, its foreign policy, its relationships with the rest of the world. It's very much decoupling from, 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 right. from, it's from decoupling. Europe. The question is, of course, if you really, and, and, and you need a unanimous decision in the EU to really cut the membership process. And if you do so, there's no way back. Yeah. Post Erdogan and 20 years from now, no way back. We'll yeah. never agree again on this. Um, if you just leave it aside and you don't talk about it anymore, yeah. it is an instrument which you can pull out the shelf one beautiful day when uh, Erdogan is not in power anymore. And what do you think is going to happen then going forward? Do you think it's just going to be more of the same, this kind of transactional relationship with things occasionally flaring up and becoming kind of crisis-laden, but but lots of tactical cooperation around refugees and other issues, or do you think that... Yeah, I, I think it's going to be precisely that way. It's, okay. it's going to be a tactical relationship. There will be, um, of course, uh, lots of common issues to talk about, such as terrorism and, and, and uh, people going back from Syria to Germany via Turkey and this and that. But... Um, it, it will be mostly transactional and then uh, thus in a way Erdogan likes it to be and, and, uh, Merkel basically has, has agreed to this, uh, this type of a relationship. Okay. What about Germany and the Middle East then? How, does, I mean, obviously Syria looms quite large for, for recent, uh, historical reasons. Israel looms quite large for, for less recent historical reasons mm -hmm. in the German imaginaire. Um, <laughs> But how would you characterize uh, Germany's approach to the Middle East? How active is it? How engaged is, is Germany? Or is it more of a spectator? I think for the time being, it's more of a spectator for, for uh, three reasons. One of which is that uh, basically not only Germany's, but the Western strategy in Syria has, has failed. Uh, the whole idea of getting to a kind of peace conference uh, through the negotiations in Geneva um, has failed. Second, um, uh, Germany used to play an, uh, a significant role as an intermediator, interlocutor between Riyadh and Tehran. I remember Steinmeier uh, traveling between the Absolutely, two capitals. Yeah. Uh, that was an important role in the run-up also to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, the uh, question, there, there is uh, not much left of that. Um, and when uh, Heiko Maas, the foreign minister, just had laid the ground for um, going to Saudi Arabia again um, this, uh, this, this summer and, and in, in the fall, 
the Khachokchi crisis uh, broke out and, and everything what he had planned for broke down. So Germany is not in that role. Um, and, and the third factor is that uh, the refugee crisis is not the major topic again. Uh, and, and, and that was very important in 2015 and 16 uh, when Merkel and Obama together try to solve things in, yeah. in, in the Middle East. Now it's just, Jordan, now it's just the problem in Bavaria rather than the problem in, um, it's, in the Middle East. It's exactly. And, 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 and on top of that, we have like, we have new alliances Germany hasn't really adapted to, like, um, the Saudi, uh, the unlikely Saudi Israeli alliance or, uh, the Emirates and Israel. Um, I, I, I call it an alliance because they have these common interests against Iran, which yeah. are now the overriding interests of, yeah. of these states. So this is what brings them together, no matter the religious and ideological difference. At the same time, there was a very dramatic political reaction to the Khashoggi um, uh, situation here and lots of an immediate kind of move towards people calling for arms embargoes and things like that against um against Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well, there is... Actually, this was... Um, this is one of the stipulations in the uh, coalition agreement of the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats that all arms delivery to uh, states participating in the Yemen campaign be stopped. Um, it, uh, as far as Saudi Arabia concerned... Uh, they wanted to go on delivering promised and agreed shipments. This is true particularly for petrol boats um, uh, being built in Germany for the Coast Guard in, in Saudi Arabia. This has been now not stopped, but suspended uh, until the end of the year. Uh, after that, I, I, I think uh, some in the German government uh, and, and certainly the shipbuilders on the Baltic Sea, uh, in Volgast on the Baltic Sea, they hope for uh, warming up and that maybe the Khachokchi case might be then forgotten and, and that the suspension can be lifted. But um, so we, we see as a, a temporary stop in arms delivery. It is a very tenacious question, uh, both in, politi in the political circles and in the population uh, despite the fact that Germany is a very small arms deliverer to, to Saudi Arabia compared to other countries. Okay, so we should probably carry on our, our rapid tour of the world. There's one part of the world we actually uh, haven't talked about yet, but which comes straight out of the, the refugee crisis, which is Africa, um, where Germany obviously had a, a brief period of colonial involvement in Africa, but mm. hadn't Africa hadn't featured that highly on the German foreign policy map for for several decades, but it seems to be back in the in the headlines at the moment. Lots of talk of Marshall plans. How, how does Africa fit into the German imaginaire? Well, this is this is, I think, the primary challenge: how to balance the um, very fast population growth in Africa on the one hand. And, um, and Europe, on the other hand, with uh, the Mediterranean Sea in between and its all social systems and all what's linked to it. Um, so this is why they, they, all these 
ideas of a Marshall Plan and things are being uh, thrown around. I think what is Im important is, is, is two-track two th uh, two tra two strategy that they try to help some countries from where refugees um, uh, uh, try to get to Europe, so and then also like Niger, and then exactly, and, 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 and then on the other hand, get into similar agreements with countries, uh, neighboring countries on the southern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, to, uh, with Morocco and, and Algeria and other countries, to get to similar agreements like that one with Turkey. Um, so this is the double track strategy. Um, Plus, of course, Germany and France, you mentioned it in Mali. The, so the French-German brigade, in fact, is, is in, 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 uh, on the, in the theater there. Um, so this is how they try to stabilize a situation which I think will uh, occupy German and French policymakers uh, well into the 21st century for decades. It's, it's the huge coming topic and challenge for foreign policymakers. Okay, so we've left the two big superpowers till last. Um, I think we should probably end with, with uh, Donald Trump and the US because that's, in a way, the most painful topic for Germans when they it look is, out the world indeed. at the moment. So maybe we should talk a bit about China, which has been a huge part of Germany's economic identity for the mm. last couple of decades. Um, I remember when I used to go out to, to China, um, uh, 15 years ago and, um, I had various friends who were ambassador, German ambassadors in China and they used to do a very different job from the French and the British ambassadors because they had these long permanent, um, queues of, of businesses coming through. And, you know, half of China's trade with Europe is with one country alone, and that's Germany. Um, and they were a big um, uh, booster for, for China in the German political debate. They wanted to make sure that you had a frictionless uh, debate because they were making so much money there now. When I last spoke to German ambassador in China, um, he was saying that he has the equally long queues of businesses coming to see him, but they're all there to complain about the pressure that the Chinese government's putting on them, how markets are being closed, how they're being forced to share technology with China. Has that led to a, a, a big political reevaluation of Germany's role with China? Yes, it, it has. Um, I mean, the, the, the times, this is by the way, China is another very good example of how German foreign policy is being pushed into, uh, uh, well, leaving the mode of being just the, the facilitator of economic ties to a real politically uh, thought-out foreign policy. Um, what, uh, what they have to consider now, and, and Foreign Minister Maas was recently in, in China, is, is not only the, the challenges to uh, German businesses there, because the, the business climate has become more difficult, um, but uh, also, I think the ideological challenge and 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 uh, geopolitical challenge, because China uh, builds a network with uh, Eastern uh, European states, Central Eastern European states, sixteen plus, plus one. one exactly. So, and this is certainly for for Germany. I I, I, see, I see that as a big challenge because it happens in in, in our. 
in, in our garden influence. and and uh, yes you may <laughs> call this as such at least it's the eu so there is of course a uh, heightened interest and angela merkel's actually asked and every single chinese prime minister and president for the last few years to stop these meetings but they still continue exactly they still continue and the chinese even they have invited germany to join the crew and yeah. uh, And and the Germans, of course, we wouldn't be like, you know, 17 plus one, but uh, no, but uh, so this is a challenge. And then there is also the the ideological aspect, because uh, with uh, Xi Jinping, uh, there is, of course, a, a kind of regime, despite the Communist Party has been in power since decades, there's another uh, regime change going on into a more autocratic Uh, one big data single, dictatorship uh, one single man dictatorship exactly which is um, so and Xi Jinping now is, is, is adding to the picture of uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Erdogan and Donald Trump uh, men very ambitious men uh, challenging, challenging the world view of the European Union and Germany um, and uh, this is also something new Germany has to face when thinking about China. So talking of uh, ambitious big men. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> haven't talked about the biggest of all. Yeah. So tell us about transatlantic relations. Well, um, again, the foreign minister, there, there was a speech of Angela Merkel in 2017 saying we have to become... Uh, a bit more independent of Germany, the 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 Bierzelt speech. speech, yeah, the Bierzelt uh, true speech from Trudering. Heiko Maas has uh, this year backed it up by a newly in strategy of balancing the relationship between uh, Germany and and uh, the U.S. I I think uh, there were very interesting. Suggestions. I think he went over the top when he said we have to uh, create a counterbalance in Europe when the U.S. crosses red lines. So um, I, I found that overambitious because I don't see Europe building up a counterbalance. But uh, certainly balancing makes sense, particularly when it comes to the idea of building a multilateralist, a multilateralist strategy uh, plus a, a, an alliance of multilateralists, so basically looking out for like-minded countries and acting together um, for the, in the interest of multilateralism. Um, but again, I'm coming here to uh, the, the question of uh, words and deeds. So I wonder um, how how this alliance of multilateralists now is being formed and what kind of policy uh, actually emanates from that. So um, I, I think that we will have to see more uh, until we can, well, in order to say this is really a new strategy with, uh, with substance. Talk a bit about this, the mass strategy, because that was, it was very interesting that, you know, it had its public outing in an article he wrote in the Hundersblatt newspaper where he he laid yeah, out that was a, a bit awkward things. but uh and yeah. the chancellery um immediately briefed that they hadn't been consulted about some of the ideas in it and uh, and talked out against it just as as heichel Mas set off to the united states of america um 
Yeah, well, that was. Well, let me just say something. On, I, I find it very awkward to basically come out with a new strategy in, in newspaper commentaries. Um, such I thought as that was your Mars job. And, <laughs> and yes, of course, it's, it's, and, and you may call me jealous now because it didn't appear in the site. And also, when Merkel published her answer to Macron, uh, there was a the Frankfurt Sonntag. Sonntagszeitung. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, but it's not about jealousy, but I think it's just not the appropriate way <laughs> and they can learn from, from Macron. You shouldn't, you mustn't do it in, 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 in Versailles, you know, but, but choose some speech, uh, maybe in the Bundestag or wherever, you know, and then you come up with that and all the others will the write Sorbonne. about it, you know, <laughs> uh, or, or the Sorbonne for that matter, if it's an answer to Macron. Anyway, um, but uh, the the alliance of multilateralists um, and and I I think Mars went really over to the top when he said we need to uh, create a counterbalance and this is what the chancellery took issue with. Uh, he never came back to that kind of wording and now he's talking about balancing the relationship. Um, still, I wonder what that means because militarily, of course, it's difficult to balance in the short run. Uh, Germany can do much, much more uh, on defense. And actually, the old social democratic uh, assumption that the Germans wouldn't like more defense spending uh, has been now... Um, there are new polls saying that actually a majority of Germans well, is in plurality. favor of is in favor of more defense spending, yeah. and uh, and so we can see how attitudes can shift, and this is certainly a chance to build on. So there, I see a chance to balance things, um, and um, which in turn can be also uh, good for for the NATO alliance. Uh, by the way, um, I. I do not see, uh, well, as, as far as balancing means uh, strengthening the alliance of multilateralists, I think there's much more to be done in, in this. Because since uh, Mars uh, came, came out with this strategy last summer, I have seen like three or four visits to countries which belong to that possible alliance of multilateralists, but I do not see common actions. Uh, so the substance is still lacking. Okay, maybe we can sort of end by thinking about the people who are going to make uh, German foreign policy. Who are the critical people in the years ahead who who are going to be deciding what kind of role Germany plays on the world stage? Well, I mean, there is one thing, but this is all speculation because in early December, the CDU will decide about its new chairman or chairwoman. Um, so certainly... Uh, the person elected then will play the most decisive role. Uh, <laughs> from there on, we'll see whether the grand coalition can hold next year, whether we'll have new elections, a new foreign minister. So, But if for foreign policy watchers, I'd say look at this domestic issue uh, on, I think, the 9th of December, uh, and see who's been elected there. And and because um, Friedrich Merz, who is uh, one of the two frontrunners, uh, he has lots of international experience. He's never won an election in Germany, but he is certainly somebody who is more experienced in international affairs. Whereas Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer, 
has won elections uh, so, um, uh, convincingly, but uh, she lacks foreign policy experience. So um, we'll we'll see what comes out of that. <laughs> okay. And you've travelled a lot with Heiko Maas, who's come up a lot here. What what? How do you see him as a as a as a man as a minister? Um, lots has been has been made of uh, his his appearance and his suits and leather jackets or whatever. I find that all quite ridiculous. But I I think he came out with three interesting new initiatives we we have talked about new ostpolitik and the alliance of multilateralists um he um i think still has to live up or to 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 the expectations he himself uh set there because um yeah there is i mean he's been in office now for for eight, nine months, uh, so there's still uh, time for him to do things. But I think what we certainly need to see now is how he is uh, backing up uh, these new policy ideas. And uh, so I'm waiting myself to write about it. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. I think that was a pretty amazing uh, tour around the world through German eyes. Um, maybe we could do one last thing, which is our, our bookshelf segment where we ask people what's on their bookshelves at the moment. Uh, be great to hear what you're reading at the moment, but also whether there are any books which you think might help people understand um, German foreign policy. Um, as for German foreign policy books, you have to read there is uh, it's, it's very one old foreign policy hand. It's it's Wolfgang Ischinger, uh, always worthwhile to read. But what I'm reading actually at the moment is two um, authors I do not agree with entirely. One of which is uh, uh, Mearsheimer. I'm uh, his his book on uh, yeah, the delusion of. Uh, liberalism, if I recall the title correctly. But basically what he's saying is <laughs> that uh, liberalism, uh, he describes liberalism as a kind of imperialism and defends nationalism uh, as a defensive concept. I entirely disagree with that notion. I think nationalism is very expansive. Um but uh, it's interesting to read things which you don't agree with. The other is, is uh, going back to the 1990s and 80s, is Markus Wolf, uh, because next year we'll have the anniversary of um, unification and uh, the fall of the wall, 30 years. And uh, Markus Wolf, the former head of the uh, secret service, the foreign secret service, he has very interesting things to tell, which might, which I might need to recall then in, in the side. For example, how the CIA in uh, 1989, 1990 tried to hire Markus Wolf as an American <laughs> agent to turn him against Russia. So, uh, that is, these are interesting, uh, stories. Um, and yeah, let's, let's see what, what I can make of it next year. Great. Well, that, this bit, it's been fantastic talking to you. My, uh, bookshelf recommendation is, uh, to go to the Zeit website and read all the amazing articles that Michelle has been writing, um, recently, uh, about different parts of the world, most recently about Russia. 
Um, so I, I'll put a link up to that and to all of the titles which um, which you mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it through your social media feed, but also and above all by heading to the ratings and review pages on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on now. Um, it really helps bring other people to the podcast. But for now, for Michelle Tuman and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>